The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 20. And this morning we are in the final message of the fourth commandment. This is the fifth message, and it's the most time that we've spent on the exposition of any of the commandments. Uh, That reflects the length of the commandment uh, in the amount of words, amount of space that the Bible gives to this commandment. There's literally more text to deal with in this commandment than there are any of the others. And in this message, I I hope to show you why there is so much space given to this uh, fourth commandment in the scriptures. And the real answer to that is that the commandment is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. It holds a multitude of hope for those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and his saving power. Uh, And you may not see Christ in the words that we're going to read here in just a few minutes. You may not see it at first, but... Before the message is through today, I want to show you how Jesus Christ is in this commandment. Now, the text reads this way, beginning in verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now thus far in our study, we've discussed the first word of the command, which says to remember that we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the command from the word that we observe it. We're told to rest on the day, and that means to rest from our normal labor, those things that are our occupation, those things that you would normally do throughout the week. This day is a different day. It's a, it's a separating day, and in it we show that we're God's people by putting away what the rest of the world does, that we're not to let our normal activities interfere with this day, to turn our attention away from uh, the things of God so that we would concentrate mostly on acts of God's grace, on what God has done for us. Next, we talked about reverence. The day is a sanctified day. We rest from labor, but we don't rest from acts of worship. It's a very busy day. Sundays are a very busy day for our worship. Our activities are, are centered. And I tried to bring this out in the last message. That all of our activities are centered on the word of God. And on Jesus Christ who is the living word. So pay attention to that fact. That's the most, one of the most important things that you gather out of this commandment. Is that. The Sabbath rest and the Sabbath day is about the worship of God through His Word. Sunday is the day that we attend church when the Word of God is taught. We come here to assemble, uh, to learn the Word through meditation and prayer, through singing, and most importantly, through the exposition of Scripture. 
But we take what we learn on the Lord's Day and we put that into practice in the piety of living the Word throughout the rest of the week. The Lord's Day is a respite for God's people. It's an oasis in the week that brings us back to the purpose of our existence. Now, the fourth commandment comes at the end of the first table of the law where it significantly sums up that Jehovah is the only God and this only God, Jehovah God, deserves a day to be worshipped. And every act of worship that we do is to exalt Him above all and it's to acknowledge our love and allegiance to Him. There isn't a day like Sunday. And that's why God said, remember it. Now we observe it because it is about Him But observance of the Lord's Day also says something about us. If we don't hallow the Lord's Day, then we deny that God is our God. The Scripture says, Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Well, this morning there remains just one more detail about the Sabbath. I I believe that this is the most important, and I couldn't have ended the exposition of this commandment without discussing the most important feature of it. Now, you don't actually see it in plain words that we just read in the text, but we do find it in other parts of the Scripture. And this is why we're very careful to interpret the Scriptures by using other Scripture. Now, the great truth that that has to be underscored in the message that I want to give you today is the connection that the Sabbath has to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you would agree with me that if we can find Jesus Christ in the Sabbath, that we can't ignore it. But we can say more than that, Jesus is the Sabbath. Now, of course, you understand that God is to be worshipped. We've talked about that, how the day is to worship Him. You understand from the previous expositions of the other commandments that the Lord God that we find in verse number 2, that is actually speaking about Jesus Christ. The Lord thy God, in verse number 7, is also Jesus Christ. And the Lord thy God, in verse number 10, is Jesus Christ. And so we find him in the middle of this command. But most of all, we find Jesus squarely in the Sabbath. That the Sabbath pictures him. It's an example that we find in none of the other commandments. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul wrote, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And so all of those strange things that you read in the Old Testament about the many different acts of worship that they had there, the Bible calls those shadows. In other words, they're symbols, or or if you prefer, you could use the word types, that these are types of other things. And the word emphasizes these aren't the real things. And when we talk about the Sabbath itself, it's not the real thing, but it has an object who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the substance that is behind the symbol. And so the Sabbath stands itself stands for the whole of the Jewish religion that has this one purpose to show us Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to concentrate on today. If there is a reason to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, to hallow it, it's because the Sabbath represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, since the Sabbath is a type, it remains in effect until what the type signifies is actually taken place. And that's what we need to consider. What does the Lord reveal in the type? I want you to think about this. I want you to consider it very carefully. 
that when you disregard the Sabbath, when you take God's day and you use it for yourself, you put self above Christ. You dishonor him and you make yourself God. And that really ought to cast a whole different light on the things that we do on the Lord's day. Now, taking the Lord's day then as a, as a personal day is not a simple volitional decision about what you should do, but Sunday is a way of life. Sunday is a way of life for Christians, and the reason for that is that Christ is our life. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And so that's our subject today. How is the Sabbath a picture of Christ? Now, I want us to note this as the final observation upon this command, that the fourth part of our outline is about the reward of the day. That we are to remember the day, we're to rest on the day, that we are to reverence the day. And now finally, in this fourth part of the message, is the reward of the day. And very simply, the reward of the day is to find Christ in the Sabbath and all that we are because of him. Now you have your Bibles. I'd like to take you to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews was written to explain the superiority of Christ over all things in the Old Testament law. He's the antitype or the fulfillment of the law. So the types and shadows that we read in the Old Testament are the lesser and they point to the reality of Christ who is the greater. And so the arguments of Hebrews can be summed up in one word, and that is the word better, that Christ is better. And so throughout this book, the author of Hebrews argues that Christ is better. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He is better than Aaron. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's better than animal sacrifices. Very simply, Christ is just better. And now in this fourth chapter... The discussion turns toward the word rest. Israel was promised rest. The promised land was their rest. And this is the reason that they left Egypt so they could worship their, the Lord God in their own land. They rested from the bondage of Egypt. They rested from all the toil and troubles of those terrible taskmasters that were over them. And you know that as they received the law uh, in Exodus chapter 20 that their rest would be in the promised land. That's the place that they're headed. They're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses on to is on top of the mountain receiving the law of God. And the idea behind it all is we are on our way to the promised land. We're going there where we are going to find rest. They received the law as an example to show them they would receive their rest. And yet none of that generation actually made it into Canaan. Now, we do know two made it, Joshua and Caleb. But all the rest of Israel, millions of people, died in the wilderness without ever getting to the promised land. And in the last part of chapter 3, the, uh, the author explains that they all died because of unbelief. They never entered the promised rest because of their unbelief. And so in verse number 1, he warns us, do not be found in unbelief. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now he's building towards the thought that the rest promised to Israel is typical 
of the rest that is promised to the believer in this day. So we look at verse number 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now you see, the Bible says that the gospel was preached in the Old Testament. That it was the gospel of faith in Christ that was their gospel. It's not a gospel of works like many people teach. It wasn't obedience to the law that would save them. It was always faith in God, always faith in the sacrifice of Christ. And salvation has always been the same in every age. It will be the same in every age. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Now in verse number 3, he says, Those that believe enter into rest. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Then look at verse number 5. It says, if they shall enter into my rest. And then in verse number 6, the rest is predicated upon belief. Now in verse number 5, rest there means that they can sit down. They can take a load off. That Canaan is the promised land. It's a symbol of rest, the weariness, rest from the weariness of the journey that they're on. And here's where we, we find a problem in making Canaan a picture of heaven. There are songs in our hymn book that compare Canaan to heaven, but Canaan was not a place of complete rest. There was warfare. It was a contested place. Canaan was filled with struggles as the people tried to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And in some cases, they were unable to do it. And so the people that lived in Canaan became a snare to God's people. Now, if we go down to verse number 8, it says, For if Jesus, for if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? And I want you to notice here that Jesus, in this verse, is not Jesus Christ. This Jesus is Joshua. We well, say, well, how can that be? Well, in the Old Testament, the same name, Joshua is the same name as Jesus in the New. The names mean the same. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus means Savior. And the King James translators would have done us a great favor if they just retain the Old Testament name here because then we wouldn't need this part of the discussion. But the context of what we read here tells us that this is Old Testament Joshua that the author is speaking of. And the New Testament Jesus is better than the Old Testament Joshua because Joshua could not give the people of God complete rest. And because he couldn't, he couldn't give them uh, the, any more than just a, a promise of future complete, permanent rest. And so therefore, Joshua spoke of another day when rest would be full and complete. Now go down to verse number 9, because here's the verse that's the key to this entire discussion. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now you might want to underline that, note that. There remaineth a rest therefore to the people of God. Now let's take a look here. Let's survey what's been said thus far in using the word rest. Rest is in verse number 1. You see rest in verse number 3. Rest is in verse number 4. Rest in verse number 5. And rest in verse number 8. And in all of those instances, rest is translated from the Greek word katapephsis. Remarkably, the word changes in verse number 9. In verse number 9, the word here for rest is sabbatismos. Now would you like to guess what that word means? 
Not hard, is it? It means Sabbath. There is a Sabbath rest. And so when we begin to talk about the Sabbath in Jesus Christ, here it's describing for us that Jesus himself is that Sabbath rest. And the premise of these scriptures in this section is that Christ is better because he is the real Sabbath rest. Now when Jesus, the people of God, sit down and rest, they're through with their struggles and their toils, their trials, their sorrows, their heartaches, and all of their tears. All of, all of those who, who believe in Jesus Christ have come into the rest of Jesus Christ. This is what we're told in Revelation fourteen thirteen. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Do you have trouble keeping one day of the week as the Sabbath? Do you have one tru- you have trouble making one day the day that you're going to give God worship and honor and glory? What if I tell you that heaven is a never-ending Sabbath? For all time, heaven is a Sabbath. There remaineth, therefore, a rest to the people of God. And don't forget that, that Sabbath means rest. That's the whole thing we've got to get here. Sabbath means rest. There therefore remaineth a rest to the people of God. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes to consider this Sabbath rest in Christ. We might think of it only in terms of heaven, which is the final rest. And maybe you think of it in terms like, um, like uh, tombstone terms, R.I.P., rest in peace. But this verse in Hebrews speaks of much more than that. It actually speaks of the rest that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the gospel has many benefits of which we can partake. So I want to give you six words today that describe the rest that we have in Christ. Now the subject is just too big for me to give you all the implications of it. And so in your studies, you may come across some other words that you would like to apply to this. And there are more. What is our rest in Christ? Well, obviously, we would have to start here. That we'd have to talk about our salvation. We would have to speak of the rest of our salvation. Our salvation in Christ provides rest for it because in it we have deliverance from sin. And we, we, we can tie this to the experience of Israel in Exodus chapter 20 because this is why they're at Mount Sinai. They received the law on the mountain... Because they had been delivered from Egypt. And in the scriptures, Egypt is always a type of sin. And every person, the Bible says, is born into the slavery of sin. I know as Americans, we're very big on freedom. Veterans Day is about freedom for our country. But the truth of the matter is, there is none of us that was born free. The old saying goes, you're not born free unless your dad was a doctor. And in the spiritual sense, there is none of us that is born free. But we've all been born into the bondage of sin. Romans 8.21 says that those that are in Christ have been delivered from the bondage of corruption. Galatians 4 verse 3 says that we were under in bondage under the elements of the world. Galatians 5.1 says that we are enslaved. We were enslaved to a yoke of bondage. And in verse uh, Hebrews 2.15, it says our whole lifetime that we're subject to bondage. So I think the Bible might be trying to tell us something about sin. That all of us is born into it and none of us is free. 
And that's what our salvation is about. It's, a, it's about escaping that bondage of sin that binds us over to destruction. And so the rest of salvation is to take us out from under that bondage of sin, the oppressive weight that we have on us, the sin that brings us down and holds us down. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You that are struggling, he says, you that are struggling with a heavy burden or the weight of sin, you that are in bondage under that great burden, come to me and I will give you rest. Is that where you are today? Are you seeking the rest that you need from the bondage of sin? Is the guilt of sin still on you? Now, in the exposition of these commandments, you know from what we've learned that there is guilt involved here. We're all guilty. And do you still still feel oppressed because of the weight of addictions that you might be under or because of depression or because of failures that are in your life? This is exactly what Jesus came to do in his salvation is to deliver us from that bondage that we have of that sin to set us free from that. This is why he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. There's rest in his salvation. Then next, there is rest from condemnation. Now this is the worst part of the human condition. Sin brings us under the condemnation of these ten commandments. These are laws. You understand this? Some people say that laws are made to be broken. Not these. There's always a terrible penalty for breaking God's law. And that penalty is one penalty. It's the same no matter which one of them that you break. The penalty is always death. Every sin against God is a capital crime. And in our presentations of the gospel, that's where we have to begin. We have to take people to the law of God and show them that they have broken God's law. And because of that, they are under condemnation. And this is the reason why they need grace. We take them to the law of God so they understand you must have grace because of your sin, the condemnation that is there. And, and everyone's in that condition. The whole world is under the condemnation. Jesus said that. John three eighteen. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Romans three nineteen says that the whole world is guilty. 1 John five nineteen says the whole world lies in wickedness. And you're probably a part of the whole world, aren't you? Now, since all of us have broken God's law, then all of us are condemned. You ever heard anybody say, I think that I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person? That'll never happen. Because all, the whole world, is condemned. And so what does Jesus do? He takes away that condemnation. He gives rest from it. See, when you enter into Christ by faith, that condemnation, that requirement of judgment, the requirement of punishment is taken away. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then we notice that Paul, immediately after he says that, takes his readers to the law, and he says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walked not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 
And so you can mark this well, that the law from Mount Sinai cannot help you. There is no rest in the law. You can't talk about being a good person because there is no rest in the law. And Paul knew that was true. Because in his exposition of all these things, he spoke about how that he made his own boast in the law. And he said, I did all the things I was supposed to do. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As touching the law, I was blameless. And he meant that he kept everything that was in the law that he possibly could down to the very smallest detail. And yet he said, this law that I thought would give me life could not do anything but bring me death. The law condemned me. And it'll do the same to you, to anybody who thinks that heaven is my home because I'm a good person. Nobody can boast of salvation because we're good. The law can't save, it can only condemn. And yet what do we find right here in the middle of God's law in Exodus 20? We see it in commandment number four. There is a promise of rest. That faith in Jesus Christ takes away the condemnation of the law. Now let me take you back for a moment here to Exodus chapter 20 to the chapter before, if you still have that open, chapter 19. And I talked about this in the introduction to the commandments. Look at verse number four of Exodus 19. This is what God said before he ever gave Israel commandments. He said, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. So whatever we are, whatever is done for us, is because of Jesus Christ. That God brought Israel to himself before the law was ever given, which was to show us that it's grace. It's grace that gives us our salvation Grace has brought us thus far. Grace will lead us home. And that grace is found in Jesus Christ who satisfied God's law and its condemnation. Now thirdly, we have another rest in Christ and that is the rest of liberation. We have deliverance from our sin. We have freedom from condemnation. And then we have the liberty of life which means that we are free to walk in the ways of Christ. Stand fast therefore in the liberty Wherewith Christ has made you free. That's what Paul said in Galatians 5.1. Before, we could never walk with Christ. Christ had no part with us. We had no part with him. Romans 13 says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness and, and chambering, and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's what we were. That's what we were like. We were apart from Christ. We were never free to walk with him, not until we recognize and believe in Christ. Now, Paul made the moaning complaint of how hard it is to do what we should do. Romans chapter 7 is his lament for struggling uh, to find holiness, the strength to do that, the liberty to do that. And he found the only way that he could was in Christ. And so what happens when we put our trust in him? We become victorious in our faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And when we overcome it, we're forever set free. You'll not escape your bad habits. You'll never get out of sin's struggles until you have been set free by Christ. Then, 
Fourthly, we have the rest of protection. This is one of the, my favorite doctrines of the faith. That once that I have believed in Christ, I never have to look over my shoulder. I never have to wonder what's going to catch up with me to take away the hope that I have in him. A few weeks ago, I heard a great story of conversion. Jorge told me uh, about how Daniela came to Christ and the fear that led her to the Lord. I'll not tell you the story. You can ask and they can tell you if you like. But I say this to let you know that this is the way that many people come to Christ. They come to him because the absolute terror of dying and going to hell. And I don't know why this is, but sometimes the Lord allows people to have a deeper sense of hell than others so that when they see it, their motivations at first are not about grace and not about love and not about heaven. Eventually, they realize those things, as all of us do when we come to faith in Christ. But this is not their motivation at first. The motivation at first, some don't see that. They're driven by fear. They're driven by the fear of hell. And this is why many times I've told you, if I could scare you into heaven, I would do it. Too many people think that hell is a joke. They're okay with hell because their friends are going to be there. And they're okay with it because they think they'll be in control of what they do. That they have the ability to make hell a big wiener roast. And everybody will have be tailgating and barbecuing when they get to hell. Now, sometimes in salvation, God lets the real hell get a grip, grip on people. I mean, they can almost feel, they can almost feel uh, the flames. They can smell the smoke of it. As Jonathan Edwards said in his great sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, they can feel the flames of hell licking up around them and they're precariously held over them by the thinness of a spider's web. And they know that at any moment they'll plunge into those fires of hell. And so what do they do? They run to Christ. They run to Him as fast as they can. They are so frightened that there won't be any peace until this is immediately taken care of. These people don't run to a priest. They run to the great high priest who is Jesus Christ because He's the only one that can save them. And in Christ they find rest and they know that He'll protect them forever from the torments of hell. The worst doctrine on the planet is the one that says that a person who knows Christ has to keep looking back to see if hell is going to catch up with him. The first doctrine is to stay, that you have to stay one step ahead of hell, lest it overtake you at any time. I mean to teach you that once you get saved, the Bible says this, that it's not possible to die and go to hell once you put your faith in Christ. But some people think that, and so they always worry about it. What is it that I might do that will send me to hell? You know what that teaching says? There is no rest in Christ. There's no protection from hell. Is that what you believe about the perfect Savior? Do you believe that His love can fail? Do you believe there is no protection, that there is no rest from the torturous thought that belief in Christ has not really saved you from hell? You know, I'm so thankful that God's Word says otherwise there is rest for the people of God. Romans 8, 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then 
in verse number 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not worried about hell. Christ took my hell for me. He suffered my hell on the cross. And he promised that he would protect me from the danger of it forever. Jesus said, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. John 10, he said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Salvation is everlasting. Peter said, we are kept by the power of faith. And that's a great verse because his analogy is that it's like being inside of a fort where soldiers are guarding the perimeter. That there's a hedge of protection that's around God's people. There's rest from the fear of hell because of that constant protection. Then Peter went on and he says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of God is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? And then think about this. There is a host of angels that protect you. God sends many angels for your protection. We're not talking about one guardian angel or two guardian angels. Oh, the Word of God says that there's an army of angels that protect you. It's like Elisha when he prayed to God and he said, Open the eyes of my servant. Open the eyes of Gehazi and let him see that there are more than us than are with our enemies. And so God opened up his eyes and there he saw in the mountain chariots, horses and chariots of fire. What did Elisha know? There is the rest of protection in the Lord thy God. Fifthly, is the rest of satisfaction. How many people do you know that are satisfied? How many do you know? How many do you know are content with what they have? There aren't many, are there? This is a dog-eat-dog world that we live in. Everybody's trying to get ahead. Everybody wants more than the next guy. And so there's a thirst to make it big so that nobody reaches full contentment. The more they have, the more they want. I don't know how many of you have Amazon Prime. Anybody here have Amazon Prime? All right, a few of you do. Then you're going to understand my illustration very well here. If you don't have it, don't get it. Because you'll save a fortune and spend a fortune at the same time. Amazon has this great deal that you can have anything that you want at your door in two days with free shipping. My daughter in San Diego says that there they can have it by 5 o'clock the same day. There's nothing like the anticipation of the delivery of your Amazon box. And it doesn't matter what's in it. There's just that anxiousness that your box is going to arrive in two days. And Amazon knows that feeling. It's good. And, and they know this. You're going to get that box and the euphoria of getting your box is going to last about 24 hours until you realize there's not another box coming. And so you go back to the computer and you order something else that you don't need just so you can have Christmas again in two days. And that's addicting. And I know that it is, 
The trash man comes to my house three days a week just to take away the cardboard boxes that I've accumulated. We're not satisfied until we get another box. And people's entire lives are lived that way. They're devoted to the pursuit of happiness. I mean, the old cow in the field knows there's no happiness unless he gets, gets the grass on the other side of the fence. And so he sticks his head through the fence and he gets his horn stuck and he wrenches his neck because he can't find satisfaction. It's always just beyond him. And that's the way people are today. Satisfaction is just a little bit beyond us. So we keep going and going and going and seeking for it. Creation groans with that kind of dissatisfaction. Now, interestingly, there's a new religion that's built on that. And I'd say that it's new because it's not found in the Bible. It's new because it's a late 20th century and early 21st century phenomenon. And it's called J-O-S. The Joel Osteen Syndrome. Better known as Copelandism, Dollarism, Myersism, Henism. And it's a disease with several different names that you know best as prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel runs on the fuel of discontent. It's not Christian because God's not trying to stress people out. The prosperity gospel says you cannot be happy and you are not blessed and you do not have enough faith unless you're rich. And the interpretation of that doctrine is you're not going to be happy until you make Joel and Kenneth and Creflo and Joyce and Benny rich. The prosperity gospel feeds on discontent. How can you be content? Only if you have enough money to be on easy street. So satisfaction isn't in Christ. Satisfaction is only in money. That's what's going to help you. And this is why Joel Osteen relegates what little bit of Christ that he has in a sermon to the appendix of his books. I read an article the other day. It's a satirical article that the headline read something like this. Joel Osteen mistakenly says Christ in one of his sermons. The prosperity gospel leaves people seeking satisfaction they can never achieve because it's not true. There is no rest in discontent. Jesus gives rest from it. He satisfies. You know, sometimes... You think that your life is such a struggle. But did you know that you have lost friends that want nothing more than to have the peace and contentment of soul that you have? Christians don't panic over sickness. Cancer doesn't kill our soul. Our satisfaction isn't this life. We have hope in Christ, which is everlasting. Christians aren't devastated by death. I preach funerals where tears of sadness have been turned into Tears of joy and even into laughter because these people come to the recognition they realize my loved ones are in heaven. They've gone to heaven where they enjoy the presence of Christ. And there are lost people that wonder how you do it. How is it possible? Where does your satisfaction come from? Here it is. It's in Christ. And did you know that you can live in this dog-eat-dog world and be happy driving a 1982 Volvo? Ask Lino. I mean, he smiles as he drives down the street with his arm hanging out the window because while you're struggling to keep up with all of your payments, he's put a million dollars into the bank. Just ask him. Ask him about that. The dollar bill's in Lino's pocket. George Washington has a beard they've been in there so long. Didn't even have a bald spot when he put him in there. Christians 
are not made content with bank accounts and Rolexes and Bitcoins and diamonds. Our contentment is in Christ. He makes us content with what we have. Philippians 4.19 says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If your hope is in Christ, everything is good. And that leads me finally to this. And that is the rest of glorification. Now, stay with me just a few more minutes because this is where the commandment takes us. My hope is that one day I shall see Christ. And the Christian hope is not as the world defines hope. It's not maybe yes, maybe no, I just hope so. Our hope is built on the sure foundation of Christ's righteousness. This is built upon his obedience, not mine. And that's why I know that it'll come true. My, my hope is not grounded in this life, and that's where the rest of the world always goes for its satisfaction. They have to because they don't have anything else. They don't have any sure hope for what lies beyond. Some of them are so distraught about this that they've come to the conclusion there is nothing beyond. And so they say, we're just going to die like a dog. But my hope is founded in the final rest that the faithful Christ promised to me in the world to come. I love this passage in 1 John 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then Colossians 3, 4 that we read earlier, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. John said, we shall be like Christ. What did he mean? Let me give you another verse that explains Philippians 3, 3, 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven. That means our life, our life is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like into his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so this vile body that we inhabit, the one with the sicknesses, the diseases, stresses, exasperations, the malcontent, and and even the bad hair days, all of that will be changed into a body like Jesus Christ. And his body is a glorified body. And when the Bible says that our bodies will be like him and they will be glorified, it means that we're going to have a body that is fit to live in heaven forever. He's given us a body that can experience eternal life, meaning, of course, it never dies. And so when the resurrection comes, this body that we live in is going to be raised, raised from the dead, and that body will change instantly into a heavenly body. And when that happens, we enter into our final rest. Now let me back up just a bit. What are we to think of this rest? What is it? Heaven is not a rest home. A few weeks ago, I went home to Kentucky to visit my mother who has Alzheimer's. She's in a care facility, a rest home. Not all of the patients have her problem, but I go there and I see that many, many of them just sit. Their heads droop. As they eat their meals, some of them fall asleep before they can ever finish. And they call that a rest home because the people are done. They don't do anything anymore. Life is almost finished. And even though the staff tries to keep them busy, nobody's suffering under the delusion 
that there's something else that's going to happen here. They all know this is the final stopping place. This is where it ends. So there's no need to be too active. Now is the time to rest. And so they send them to a rest home. Heaven's not like that. Heaven doesn't have any drooping heads. Heaven is filled with vibrant activity. And what did I say at the beginning of the message? And I know that's a long time ago. Some of you are ready for the rest home now, thinking that it's not, never going to be over. But I said at the very beginning, there is a Sabbath rest. And that's what the Sabbath is. It's a time to stop the physical, secular labor and spend all of our time in acts of worship. And that's what heaven is. It's an eternal Sabbath that is filled with worship. So mark these scriptures down. I won't take time to go and read it. Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11. There you'll find out there are 24 elders that represent everybody that's in heaven from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. They're all there. And I'll give you just two phrases from verse number 8. They rest not day and night. And that means they're not just sitting down there doing nothing. And then from verse 10, they worship Christ. They cast their crowns before the throne. Verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So heaven is a Sabbath rest, but that doesn't mean that we sit down and do nothing. This is a rest of continual praise. To whom? The one that sits on the throne. And who is that one that sits on the throne? They called his name Jesus. Revelation 5, Revelation 8, Revelation 9 tells us that the one on the throne is Jesus Christ. Now, do you understand this a little better now? Commandment number 4 is about Sabbath rest, that it's a type, that it's a shadow of Jesus Christ. So whatever you do with the Lord's day, whatever you do with this day, you do that to Christ. To give you a little bit of different perspective from, well, I think I'll sleep in today. I think I'll watch a ball game today. I think I'll get double time at work today. I think I'll fish today. I think I'll golf today. Just fill in the blank. The Sabbath is the Lord's day. Jesus Christ is the Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, believe it or not, I'm through with the fourth commandment. I've not exhausted it. I could go on. I could tell you about the curses that are associated with it. There's plenty of those in the Bible, what God said happened to his people because they forsook the Sabbath. But you need to do a little bit of your study, a little bit of study on your own. What else can you find about the rest of the Sabbath day? That's a very interesting study. In fact, if you got your concordance and you looked it up, you would find the word Sabbath occurs 147 times in the King James Bible. Look some of those up and learn more about the Sabbath rest. That'll give you an idea why this commandment is the longest one that we have in the list. So I could go on and on, but I hope that this suffices to have you remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Just remember this. If you have any questions about anything else that's been said, anything else in five messages that you don't understand, then at least remember this. Jesus Christ is the Sabbath of God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for this day that you've given us. It is a blessed privilege to come here and to know that as we meet for worship, that we're looking forward to that final rest that's going to come to us. And even in, in 
just the acts of worship that we do and knowing you as Savior, there are so many benefits here that we find rest in so many ways. Our salvation, our freedom from condemnation, the, the liberation that we have in Christ, the satisfaction that we have in him, just all of these things just compound together to help us to see Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. Open someone's eyes to the gospel because it's only through the gospel that we realize that Jesus is rest. Help us to see it today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Probably about eight or nine, maybe ten weeks ago that I began studying for these messages. And I saw at the very beginning where we were headed. And I said, we've got to get to the part about Jesus Christ is the Sabbath. And so honestly, I kind of labored through four Sundays of dealing with all the other things that are in the text to help you to understand what they did in the Old Testament, how it translates into the New Testament, and talking about what they did for rest, what Christ represented in rest through his resurrection from the dead. But honestly, I was struggling and striving to get to this point, the main point of all of what I've said, that Jesus Christ is this Sabbath. That we find him here in the middle of the Ten Commandments, but all these other things that Israel did and teaching us all the things that we should do. And we find Jesus Christ in that fourth commandment, summing up the first table of the law, that Jesus Christ is the only hope that we have. Our only hope of the Ten Commandments is Jesus Christ. And in him, you have rest from all the condemnation that comes because you can't keep any of them like you should. Christ did it for us. That's why he's our rest. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, trust in him because you cannot escape the law. You cannot escape it. Jesus Christ died to fulfill it. Believe in him. The word of God says, believe him and you shall be saved. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.